last chapter of Ruth. We will not finish the chapter today. I know that's not a surprise to a lot of you. Um, but we will do verses 1 through 12. John Newton, uh, if you guys have ever heard of him, he was the famous uh, slave ship captain. Uh, he captained these ships that um, took slaves from, you know, one place to another. And he wrote the song Amazing Grace once he got saved. Uh, just blew him out, got saving grace, even for somebody like him. And he once wrote that we learn to recognize the guidance of God in our lives as a mu musical ear judges notes. <clears throat> Uh, which I thought was a really good way of putting that. Now, you may not have an ear for music, uh, but what he means is as we walk with Jesus, as our relationship matures with him, we should begin to uh, recognize his voice. We should recognize where he is guiding us. Jesus in John 10 said that my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So as we follow Jesus, we should know his voice if we're his sheep, right? The closer we get to him, we need to follow him so closely. We need to be in the word. We need to be worshiping. We need to be praying. The point where we can feel his leading in our lives. And as we've been talking about the book of Ruth, that's just so evident. As we see God working behind the scenes, working in people's lives, even in the mess, to bring his purposes about. Uh, this book starts off with Naomi. Uh, she is the first character we meet coming back from the land of Moab. And then it turns to Ruth as she goes out into the field. And then we meet Boaz. But as we close out the book, it goes in reverse order. We see Boaz here, and then it moves to Ruth and then to Naomi. Naomi, uh, the bitter woman who is in a big hurry. Sometimes we get in a way bigger hurry than God. In fact, God's not in a hurry at all. Uh, but we get in a big hurry. And, you know, Naomi was very quick to try to take advantage of the situation. Once she found out that Boaz had a sweet spot for Ruth. She was like, you better get down to the threshing floor right now. <laughs> Change your clothes and know your head. Get down there. Let's take advantage of this. Let's hurry. Strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. Uh, they play on this in The Chosen, the TV series The Chosen. Um, you guys don't know. I'm a huge fan. And uh, Simon Peter is talking to Jesus, and he's saying, listen, when are you going to make yourself known? When are we going to get to this thing? When are you going to let people know that you're the Messiah? And Jesus says, soon. And Simon's like, what does that mean? Is that like a day? Is that a week? And Jesus says, go talk to my father about how long a day is. And then, you know, we'll talk about it soon. Because it says, actually, Peter, this is interesting that they use this. Because later in 2 Peter, he says that a day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. So Jesus' version of soon, the time is relative, right? He is not bound by time. So when he says soon, it's all in his timing. And then again, when Jesus is talking to John the Baptist um, in season two, he says, uh, John the Baptist is getting impatient and he wants him to get out and let people know. And Jesus says, soon. And John the Baptist says, ah, there's that word again, soon, soon. God works in our circumstances, but in his divine timing, his timing is perfect. Last week we wrapped up chapter three and we find Boaz at the threshing floor, and they had brought the barley in, and they had partied it up, they had had a feast, and he's sleeping at the end of the grain, he's guarding the harvest. And he wakes up, and he finds Boaz, or he finds uh, Ruth at his feet. And he's kind of taken off guard, but I think it's an interesting symbolism that he wakes up, and there's a woman at his feet. Not unlike Adam, whom God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him, 
And when he woke up, there was Eve. I thought that was a pretty cool symbolism. But Ruth says to him, she says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. It's funny because she uses the same verbiage that Boaz used when he met her in the field. When he met her in the field, Boaz says, may the Lord give you a full reward under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And so she uses the same verbiage and says, spread your wings over us. We talked about the symbolism of the garment and the hem of the garment and how God had told them to attach tassels to the corners of the garment as a remembrance of his commands. And they called those tassels, the hems of the garment, they called them wings. And so the hem, the wings, she was like, spread your wings protectively, but also this garment to protect. And then in the prophet Malachi, I said Matt Malachi last week, just to be funny, but uh, he wasn't Italian. But Malachi uh, wrote that when the son of righteousness rises, the son of righteousness being the Messiah, he will have healing in his wings, literally in the tassels of his garment. As the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, she was hemorrhaging and she could not find a solution. And she saw Jesus and she believed that he was the Messiah. She said, if he is the Messiah, I'm going to risk everything because I've already spent everything. And if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know there's going to be healing there. And she got healed physically, but even more importantly, spiritually. And Boaz is caught off guard, but it doesn't change who he is on the inside. He is so uh, stayed on God. It's so ingrained in him. He's a man of integrity. He doesn't make the mistake of confusing temptation with opportunity. Because this would have been a real temptation. I mean, let's face it. The guy had party at night, he's feasting, everything is going well, he's at the threshing floor, there's a pretty woman sitting at his feet who's just got, you know, all dressed up and perfumed, and there's an opportunity there that he could have taken advantage of, but he doesn't confuse temptation with opportunity. In fact, he uses the opportunity to completely bless her again. As he says, take your cloak and lay it on the ground, and he measures out six, well, we don't actually know, he did six measures of barley, and he pours it in there and sends her home to Naomi, he's sending a message to the matchmaker saying, I got the point. I got your point. Now here's my response. Um, I'm working on it. We talked about that number six and how number six represents man. Man was created on the sixth day. And six is also the number of our labors. The Jewish people were supposed to work for six days and then they were supposed to have a Sabbath. And that number, the Sabbath being the number of perfection, six is one short of that. And he was saying, listen, I'm working on it. It's not completed yet, but I'm going to work on it. And when Naomi got the message, she understood the number six. She said, all right, now we can rest. Because this man won't rest until the matter is settled today. I think that's important, that we now get to rest. But Jesus already completed it. So now we get to rest. Back at the threshing floor, though, uh, Boaz had dropped this little nugget that threatened to throw a wrench in the whole operation. Uh, Naomi had come up with this whole plan of getting Ruth down there. And Boaz says, there's actually another kinsman who's closer to you, closer to Elimelech, her father-in-law, than I am. And we're going to have to talk to him to first. And I can only imagine that when she went back and talked to Naomi, now if it's me, because this is how I think, why does there always have to be a problem? Like, why does there always have to be a snag? I had this perfect plan, was going to work the plan, and now there's a problem. And that's a pretty good sign that we're getting ahead of God when our plans get messed up. So, we left that off with a cliffhanger last week of this new kinsman redeemer uh, because here he comes in chapter 4. And we will read this together just starting at verse 1. 
And we're going to kind of just take this piecemeal. So this is verses 1 and 2. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Now, Boaz goes to the gate of the city. Why the gate? The elders and the judges of the people, uh, they would go to the gate of the city. And they would sit down and they would hold court there. So the elders and the older uh, men would be the ones who were judging, the ones who were counseling. And so if you had an issue that needed fixing, you would go to the gate where the elders were and you would present your case and they would give you a judgment. Or if you had a business transaction that you wanted to do and you needed a witness, kind of like a notary, you would go there and they would witness this transaction taking place. And I love how it says, behold, behold, like here he comes again. He just happens to walk by, kind of like Ruth just happened to be in Boaz's field. So remember that the details that God gives us, he gives us for a reason. And he leaves details out for a reason too. Now, how does Boaz engage this guy? He doesn't mention him by name. He doesn't mention the kinsman. And there's a reason for that. And basically, when he says, turn aside and sit down here, the verbiage that he's using is basically, hey, buddy, sit down here. Come take a seat. I want to talk to you. His name's not mentioned, though. And this other redeemer sits down next to Boaz, and Boaz takes ten elders and says, sit down here. These are the judges. He wants them to witness this whole thing taking place. He wants to do things the right way. He could have tried to pull a fast one and just marry Ruth. He says, no, I want to go about this the right way. And so he takes them. Now, a couple interesting things about these ten men. Um, the Jewish tradition, if you wanted a synagogue in a city, you had to have at least ten men. Ten men constituted a community. There were even some prayers that you couldn't recite unless you had ten men present. That was the minimum. Uh, these ten men represent the Ten Commandments. They represent the law. This is the nearest kinsman. Before Jesus came physically, before he came to earth, there was a very unmerciful kinsman that had claimed to you and I, claim on our lives because of sin. And without Jesus, they simply sit there and they stare at us every single day in the face. They don't defend us. They don't mediate for us. They simply point out our failures and our shortcomings. All right, verse 3. 3 and 4. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, that I may know, for there is no one else besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Boaz puts the question to this unnamed redeemer, this unnamed kinsman. He says, here's the situation. Now, what are you going to do about it? Give me your decision so that everybody here can know. Now, Boaz is probably, he's a leader. He's probably one of the leaders of the city, but he's also a businessman. And he's taking an opportunity here to kind of set this kinsman up so that people can see what his character is like. Now, in redeeming the land, he's also taking Naomi. Now, I don't think he's that worried about taking on Naomi. I mean, let's face it, Naomi is old. She's old. And when he takes her on, that's not that big of a responsibility. He gets the land, 
But he also has to take care of her. If you remember, the land, if it was sold like it was here, would go back to the original family in the year of Jubilee, right? Every 50 years, it would go back to that family. Now, I don't know how, she old, how old she was, and I don't know where they were in the cycle, but there might have been a good chance that Naomi wasn't going to make it, which means the land was going to be hit. She was past the age of childbearing, so he's not going to have to raise up an heir. He gets the land. That's a pretty good deal. He says, I'll take it. All right, verses 5 and 6. And Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz got him on this one. He only wanted to do half the job. He didn't want to take full responsibility. He wanted the possession, but he didn't want the person. He wanted the possession, but he didn't want the person. Boaz was a wealthy man. I mean, he had everything that he needed, but there was something that he wanted, and that was something to share it all with. You see, he wants the person, and the land comes with it. He wants the person, and the land comes with it. You know, God had everything he needed. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all together in community, in harmony, didn't, he didn't create us because he was lonely. But he created us for, for you know, relationship. He wants relationship with you. That's why he's called you to himself. To himself. You may have heard the saying, you know, oh, that person's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You know, that person's always talking about the Bible. They're always talking about church. They're so heavenly minded, they're not good, you know, just practically. But I would argue that it's just the opposite. As Christians, as people that follow Jesus, we need to be heavenly minded before we're going to be any earthly good. If we want to be productive here, we need to be stayed on Jesus. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, once said, he said, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you'll get neither. You won't get either of them. We need to keep our gaze on heaven. It's easy to get distracted by the things of this life, the temporal stuff, right? Not the eternal stuff. We need to focus on the eternal. Uh, Jesus even said in the sower and the seed, when he was telling that parable, that the sower was going along and he was you know, throwing out seed, and some of it hit the ground and sprang up, but it got choked out by weeds. With the weeds were the cares and the anxieties of this world. It sprang up quick, it was excited. But bills and relationships and problems at work all choked it out, choked out the good news. In Matthew 6, 33, I'll read it to you. Jesus, speaking of not being anxious, says this. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All what things? Everything that we need. Everything that we need is going to be added to us. Doesn't mean we're going to have everything we want, but we will have everything we need. Everything you own, this is a good exercise. Go home, look around. Everything you own is going to end up in a landfill. That new furniture you bought, <laughs> that new TV, it's all going to end up in a landfill. I almost went to the landfill this week. I was working on a project and I needed some old shingles. I needed some for a commercial that we were doing. And I was talking to one of the landfills and I was like, is there a place that they you know, dump these that's separate from everything else? Because I know the roofers go in there and they dump all these shingles. And she said, oh no, 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 it all goes in together. There's no special place at the dump. <laughs> it all goes in together. 
No special sections. The reason this kinsman's name isn't mentioned is because he refused to fulfill his covenant obligation. He will not have a place in what God is doing because he would not incur the burden at the expense of his own inheritance. He's not going to have a place in the story because he would not be burdened. He would not do the obligation that he was supposed to by covenant. Because if he did, he would have to raise up an heir. I mean, Naomi's old, but Ruth is is childbearing age. Who knows how many kids she could have had. Kid wouldn't have been his own. He would have had to spread out his inheritance. Now we can only assume by this that he's probably married and has kids of his own because his inheritance would be split up. Can you imagine that conversation when you got home? (laughs) You are not going to believe what happened to me today. (laughs) I'm getting married. (laughs) Again. No, that would have been a problem on the home front. He's like, I cannot redeem it. But as the kinsman, okay, he had drawn lines that limited his obedience. And I think that's an important principle because where do you and I draw lines or put up boundaries that keep us from being obedient to God fully? A lot of people, Boaz was ready to show said. We talked about that word said last week, that covenant love that God has for his people. Um, Boaz was ready to show that covenant love to Ruth, um, but not the kinsman. But sometimes we hold back. We have lines that we won't cross that keep us from being obedient. Uh, sometimes we negotiate with God. We say, God, listen, I'll do this, but don't ask me to do that. You know what that thing is. A lot of people want heaven but they don't want to mess around with holiness. They want the field, but they don't want the faithfulness. They don't want to have to do that. They've drawn lines to keep them from their obedience. Even in the story of the Good Samaritan, we see the Levite and the priest that come along and they see the guy that's beaten half to death. He's lying there. And the priest and the Levite, they're serving God, but they've drawn up lines. They've fallen into religion. The do's and don'ts that said, you can't touch that guy. It's going to make you unclean. Then you're not going to be able to go to the temple. Then people are going to wonder why. And your reputation is going to be marred. All because you stopped to help somebody. But what they were supposed to be doing is reaching out with the love and grace and mercy of God. But they had drawn these lines, these do's and don'ts that kept them. And then what about the rich young ruler? In Mark 10... And he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these have kept from my youth. And it's interesting because he left one of them out. Remember I said he withholds some of these details on purpose. He left one out on purpose. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus left out the commandment, You shall not covet. The one that had to do with possessions. This guy had a problem in his life, and it was things. And Jesus put his finger on that thing in his life and said, if you want it all, you got to give it all away. And this guy walked away sorrowful. We have to erase the lines that keep us from being obedient. Because if you do that, I guarantee you'll be blessed. Amen? If you erase those lines, you'll be blessed. The law cannot redeem us. 
For those of you who were with us during the book of Galatians, you already knew that. The law can't save us. We try, but you could be as dedicated as you want. You could read your Bible every day. You could come to church four days a week if we had it. You could try as hard as you can, but if you're looking at it that way, if you're trying to save yourself, you're looking at the wrong Redeemer. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law only points out our sins, our failures, where we fall short. Only when we realize that it's not about what we can do, but it's what our greater than Boaz does and has done that we can live in freedom. Ruth only has two options here. She's got two options, and we only have two options. We have the law, and we have grace. And unless you've lived a perfect life, I suggest you take what's behind door number two. Grace. That's what we've been offered. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not the law, but of the Spirit. For the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, we've all been redeemed from the penalty of sin. Jesus took the penalty. There is no longer, for the Christian, those who are following Jesus, no longer any penalty for sin. But we are constantly being delivered from the power of sin, from the power of sin in our lives as we walk with Jesus. We're not going to be sinless, but as followers, as we mature in our faith, we should sin less, right? And one day we'll be delivered from the presence of sin as we stand in his presence. Then we'll no longer have to worry about that, which will be an awesome day. Boaz gives the law a chance. They didn't try to pull fast one. Okay, verses 7 and 8. Ruth 4, 7 and 8. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when he, the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Now, I'll be honest, this is one of those verses that I kind of skip over. I tend to skip over, because that's weird. Why is this guy handing me this dirty, nasty sandal? <laughs> that's strange. But it was twofold. One was signifying that a transaction was taking place. This goes back to Joshua 1, Joshua 1, 3. And after Moses had died, his right-hand man, Joshua, takes over, and God tells him, tells him this in verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised Moses. God told Moses and he told Joshua, everywhere you walk, everywhere your foot touches, you are going to possess that. And so as this kinsman gives him his shoe, he's saying, I'm giving up my right to possession. It is now yours. It is now yours to take action on, to walk on, if you will. Make sense? Okay. We have some strange ways of making agreements, too. Uh, remember, back in former days, because you see it in cartoons when I was little, but if you were really serious about making an agreement, you would spit on your hand and shake hands, right? That's disgusting. But people that were reading that a thousand years ago would think the same thing. That's weird. But that was actually a cleaned up version of what tribes used to do when they would cut their hand and shake on it, and that was a blood covenant. So that was a cleaned up version of that. Uh, so I got lost in some wormholes. I'm like, I'm going to look up some you know, strange business customs. Uh, and I had to stop myself because I'll spend a long time doing that. But one of them I found that was really weird is in Japan. In Japan, I get, I get business cards all the time. And in Japan, if you took a business card, here's what I do with business cards. I did it, I look at it, and I throw it in my pocket. 
If you did that in Japan, it would be a serious insult. Because a business card is an extension of that person. So they would hand you their business card and you would receive it. I don't know what you did with it after that, but you didn't put it in your pocket. You just kind of held it and you know showed it reverence, I guess. Uh, very strange. Um, Alicia and I this week were listening to a message. We're trying to figure out, you know, what's a good way to let people know about Bethany Fellowship, right? And so we had some business cards made up. Because uh, this would be cool. We can have a bunch of business cards up. You guys can take a stack, and whenever you feel it, whenever you want, you can just hand them out to people. Because you know, if you don't have a pen or write something down or you want to text somebody, just hand them off. Um, and so these came in earlier this week. I was super excited about it. And I got our, you know, our website on the back and an email address and our times. But I also put the location on it. Now we got an email this week. This is unfortunate. Um, they want this space back, and so we don't get to meet here anymore. Next week, next Sunday, is our last meeting here. They didn't give us a lot of notice, so these cards are worthless now. <laughs> we'll have to get some new cards. I don't know where we're going to land, <laughs> but it's okay. It's all right. Um, so we're going to have to find a new place, but uh, we'll let you know. Actually, the City of Liberty is meeting tomorrow to decide whether or not open the schools again. So what would be really cool is if they open the schools again and we could find a space that you know met our needs um, instead of going back to the Glen Eyre Clubhouse, which we, you know, that, we can do that in a pinch. But for those of you that have been with us for a while, you know where that is. Um, so um, that's my little announcement on <laughs> business cards and our last Sunday here. <laughs> Well, next. next Sunday, yes, absolutely. Um, all right, the second thing that's taking place in this situation goes back to Deuteronomy 25. And God gave instructions on redeeming widows and raising up children. Deuteronomy. Let's see if I can find it real quick. 25, verse 7. This is a cool one. When I say the Bible's not boring, this is what I'm talking about. <clears throat> 5 verse 7. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him and in the presence of the elders pull off his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> That's awesome. And then she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> That's great. There goes Shoeless Joe, the guy who wouldn't do his duty. Man, that guy's a heel. He's got no soul. The guy's a disgrace. I had to. I had to. That's a good one. All right. Keeping it real. Keeping it real. Spits in his face. Basically, this guy was a disgrace. Boaz gave the law a chance. It wouldn't do it, so he says, I'll do it. I meet the requirements. I'll fulfill the obligation. I have the means and the will to redeem this couple. All right, back to Ruth 4, this is 9 and 10. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and that belong to Chilion and to Malon, 
Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So just as the people were to serve as witnesses to this redemption, you and I are called to be witnesses to the grace that's been shown to us by Jesus. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended to heaven, they took him as far as Bethany, and he ascended, but before he left them, he said, you are going to be my lawyers, you're going to be my defense attorneys, or my monuments. No, he said, you guys are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're not supposed to be the frozen chosen, y'all. We're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be witnesses. We're supposed to be people that others want to be around and learn about Jesus. In the book of Acts, the disciples are in the upper room. Jesus told them, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come down. So they're in the upper room, they're praying, they're worshiping, and the Holy Spirit falls down. And they all start speaking in different languages, and there's tongues of fire over their heads. That would have been cool. And Peter, Peter, who always has to say something, this time he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, though. And he goes outside and he preaches this awesome sermon, and 3,000 people get saved. 3,000 people. He says, you guys need to repent. This Jesus, whom you guys killed, we were witnesses to his resurrection. The Old Testament prophets witnessed about it. We're witnessing about it. Everybody needs to get saved. 3,000 people. That's what happened when the Spirit came down and gave life. Now, what happened when the law came down? That day when the Spirit came down, we call that Pentecost. Uh, what the Jewish people celebrated as Pentecost was when the law came down from Mount Sinai. Moses went, Moses went up the mountain. He came down with the Ten Commandments. That's the day, Pentecost. When they arrived in Bethlehem, it was Passover. It was Passover. Pentecost takes place 50 days after Passover. And that's when they celebrate the law. And Moses and Joshua are coming down the mountain. They said, it sounds like a war is going on down there. But when they make it down, the people are having Mardi Gras down in the camp. They're fleshing out, and Moses breaks the tablets because he's so ticked off, and 3,000 people die. When the law comes down, the law kills, but the Spirit brings life. All right, 11 and 12. Let's see if I can find it this time. Then all the people said, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Not only the elders, but all the people who are at the gate. So evidently it's a big deal, and people start to gather. Bethlehem wasn't a big town. They're up there, they start to gather. They are witnessing to it. When all of this goes down, they respond, they respond with their approval, and they bless them. This is such a cool thing. May Ruth be like Rachel and Leah, the women who bore the 12 tribes of Israel. Messy situation, if you recall. If you recall, Jacob, he's super attracted to Rachel. He wants to marry. He falls in love. He goes to her dad, Laban, and he says, I love her. I will work for seven years to marry her. And Laban says, seven years? Pretty good deal. All right, let's do it. So after seven years, he goes to get married. And Laban pulls a switcheroo on Jacob. On the wedding day, he puts Leah in place of Rachel. I don't know if Rachel was tied up in the back or what was going on. 
But he put Leah there. How does he not know that it's Leah? Well, they're wearing all of this clothing. She's wearing a heavy veil. Nobody can see her face until they get into the bedchamber, and then he figures it out. And he's ticked, understandably so. And he goes out to talk to Laban, and he says, hey, we don't, we don't marry off the younger before the older one. Thought you knew that. Had to marry off Leah first. I don't know how he didn't throttle him at that point. But he says, I will work for you seven more years for Rachel. So he works another seven years for Rachel. And between these two women and some servant girls, told you it was messy, come the 12 tribes of Israel. But the people are blessing them that they'll have lots of kids and that Boaz gets blessed and he's going to be famous in this region. Ephrathah was the region and Bethlehem was the town and he certainly is famous. The last blessing is a little bit strange. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Now, Perez is specifically mentioned here because Perez is in the line of Judah. And it was predicted, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come in the line of Judah. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Everybody remembers the story of Judah and Tamar, right? No. No, they don't tell this one in children's church. I'll try to keep it... Uh, I'll try to keep it PG-13. Okay. Um, I'll hit the low lights because the point that they're making here is that God's purposes will prevail. Uh, if a covenant redeemer doesn't do his job, then God's purposes are going to prevail. And they're getting to the point of what these men are saying applies to the law of raising up kids for your brother. <clears throat> Tamar and Ruth are two Gentile women that believe God, that believe Yahweh when God's covenant people didn't. They believed God when his covenant people didn't. In Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, he mentions four women. Now, first of all, that's odd because in the genealogies, you only mention men. But he mentions four women. But it's not the four women that you thought he would. He didn't mention Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah. All the women who helped build up the nations of Israel. He didn't mention them. He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, that's weird. These are women that you would want to keep out of the genealogies because in all of them, they're all born outside the covenant. They're all Gentiles, okay? And all of them have some form of sexual immorality in their background. Some of them are directly involved and some of them have them in their history. I mean, Ruth didn't, but she was a Moabitess. And if you go back into Moabite history, it's bad. There's some, I'm not going to talk about that because it's PG-13. Um, but even in all that stuff, God's grace shines through. In our brokenness, God's purposes prevail. This should bring a great comfort to you and a great comfort to me that even in our broken state, even when we mess up, even when we fail, even when we lose faith, God can work in us and through us to make his purposes happen. So Leah had Judah, and Judah had a son named Ur. So if you're looking for a name, maybe Ur. <laughs> Terrible. Had a, name, a son named Ur. And so Ur married Tamar. Judah went and got a wife for Ur, and it was Tamar. And it tells us that Ur was a wicked man, and God put him to death. So, Judah says, okay, I have another son, Onan. Onan, you need to, you know, go marry Tamar. You need to raise up a child in his name. And Onan was also a wicked man, and I will just say that he was enjoying the benefits of marriage without impregnating Tamar. And so because of that, God struck him dead. See, he didn't want to fulfill his covenant obligation either. And God struck him dead. 
Now, Judah's getting a little freaked out at this point. He's got a third son, but he's young. And he says, tell you what, Tamar, why don't you go back to your parents' house, and when my other son grows up, you can marry him. Uh, but Judah had no intention of marrying his younger son off to Tamar. Uh, you know, at this point, he thought, what is wrong with this woman? When in reality, what's wrong with his sons? His boys were the wicked ones. So he's not going to risk it. And when Tamar uh, realizes this, when she gets to the age where his son should have been married off, she gets ticked. And somebody tells her, they said, listen, Judah, his wife just died. Judah's wife is dead. He's going up to visit the sheep herders. He's got a bunch of sheep, and they're shearing the sheep. He's going up to check on them. Uh, she gets ticked. She decides she's going to go take matters into her own hands. And so she's deceitful and says she took off her widow's robes, all the black clothing. She took them off and she raced ahead. She dressed like a harlot. Long story short, bad story short, she tricks Judah. And out of that union comes, um, <laughs> sorry, comes Perez. So Perez comes in the line of Judah in a messy, messed up way, but God's purposes prevail. Um, Perez's name means to burst forth, to burst forth. It was actually twins, and Perez came out first. God's picture of fruitfulness comes, comes through in Perez and bursting forth despite our human failures. He's the result of another man who wouldn't fulfill his covenant responsibility. Messy stories, but here's the point. Jesus is willing to be a descendant of human shame. He could have picked a flawless bloodline, but he didn't. D.A. Carson, who's a theologian, writes about this genealogy. He says, they were all part of Messiah's line. For though grace does not run in the bloodline, God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. And there was another man who wrote, it is though God intended this genealogy to say, oh, Christ is the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. That's pretty cool. Next week is Father's Day. We're going to finish this up on Father's Day. It's pretty cool how this ends because next week doesn't usually happen this way. We're going to talk about the son that's born to Boaz when he becomes a daddy on Father's Day. Pretty excited about that. But... The story of God's grace all throughout this book, how he's working behind the scenes. Um, I found this story. It's the unmerited gift of grace. And a lot of you are probably going to remember this. I'm just going to read it because the way that it's written is, is really good. But if you're not stunned by the thought of grace, then you aren't grasping what grace offers you or what it costs Jesus. In 1987, 18-month-old baby Jessica fell into a 22-foot well in Texas. You guys remember baby Jessica? I remember that. It was nothing. That was the only thing that was on TV for like three days. 55 grueling hours. Her life hanging in the balance. They finally reached her and extracted her from the well. The nation literally breathed a sigh of relief as they're watching this thing unfold and cheered the heroes. This was not the story. Baby Jessica clawed her 18-month-old body up the side of that 22-foot well inch by inch digging in her little toes and working her way up. She's a hero, that Jessica. Not true, not the way it went down. Baby Jessica is utterly helpless. I think it's interesting because this book is called Ruth, but Ruth ain't the hero. Boaz is the hero. He is our picture of Jesus. She was utterly helpless. She could do nothing to deliver herself. Her fate was in the hands of her rescuers. Left to herself, Jessica had no chance. 
Likewise, when it comes to our salvation, we are utterly powerless. That's grace. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. We get no more applause for our redemption than baby Jessica got for being rescued. God alone deserves the ovation. In the story of redemption, he's the only hero, and it didn't just cost him 55 hard hours of labor. It cost him everything. You can go get the kids. Boaz is the picture of Jesus, and Ruth is a picture of the church. Ruth is a picture of the church. She had no hope, only a meager living to try to scratch out. And as the church, as the outsiders, not part of God's people, we had no hope. But God was working behind the scenes to bring Ruth into his family, to be part of his people. And no longer after this do we call her Ruth the Moabite. She's just known as Ruth because she's part of God's people. And you and I are part of God's people. We're not outsiders if, you're, if you've made Jesus the Savior of your life. God's working behind the scenes. When we go through hard times, we need to remember that God is working behind the scenes. When we get kicked out of our clubhouse, <laughs> God is working behind the scenes. Uh, that, that song that we were singing, uh, You've Never Let Me Down. I'll confess, there was a season in my life where I could not sing that song. It was tough. Um, because I was thinking, God, my plan... The way I thought it should work out didn't happen. And it feels like you let me down. But he didn't promise that we were going to have a smooth ride. What he promised was that in the storm, in the struggle, he would be there with us. And when we sing, you have never let me down, we may have walked away from him, but he hasn't walked away from you. And he is faithful to keep his promises because he has chosen you. That's the truth. Don't get blindsided, don't get frustrated, don't get taken out by the enemy and his attacks. Because this is something that Alicia and I were talking about the other day. The enemy doesn't sleep. The demons ain't sleeping. They're coming after you night and day. That's why it's so important that we don't just give God two hours on a Sunday. We give him time. We're in the word. We're doing devotions. We're praying. We're fellowshipping with other believers. Because the enemy is working night and day to try to take you out. But, the Bible says, it's him. He upholds us with his righteous right hand. And he's not going to let us go. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. But if we want to sin less, right, then we stay close to him. Where we recognize his voice. Where we recognize his guidance in our life. And that's what we see in this book. And then we'll wrap up next week.